Hi, Ear Polygamy listeners. It's the end of the year, and if you haven't made a donation yet to the Year Polygamy podcast, now's your chance. I'd love for you to go to yearpolygamy.com and make a donation. Help make my December, and I'll continue to make yours by putting out insane content that is both informative, sometimes disturbing, but ultimately important as we raise awareness about these issues. Thanks for giving, and thanks for listening, and I hope you're all having a wonderful holiday season. Welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I don't know why it's the month of December, which in the United States is supposed to be the holidays for everyone, and we decided to talk about the worst stories in Mormon fundamentalism. So, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Uh, with me, I'm bringing back Christina Rossetti, a scholar friend and fellow traveler in the world of fundamentalism. Christina, how did we how did you get involved in fundamentalism? It was like did I do this to you? I met a fundamentalist. No, it was actually an interesting story. It was actually in Warren Jeff's house. Did you come No, I was there for a Sunstone, Short Creek. That's that's what did this to you? (laughs) And yeah. And someone asked just like super casually, like just out like no context doesn't know me they're like oh so you're AUB I mean that's a good guess but no um and so that was my first interaction talking to practicing fundamentalists was someone asking if I was part of the AUB again good good guess but definitely not my life that's hilarious and also my condolences (laughs) and uh yeah so today we're back and we're talking this is the second part we recorded episode one where we give some of our opinions and rants and we talk about Brian David Mitchell and now we're going to finish talking about you know the some of the stories when fundamentalism goes bad for all you defensive Mormons out there we are not saying just because we're telling these stories that this is your belief if you identify as Mormon I identify as Mormon and I couldn't condemn more what these what these dude bros did like I think it's bad news it doesn't reflect my values at all and yet a lot of it's familiar to me And I think that that's, you know, me getting honest about where I position with this. And so I would encourage people out there who are uncomfortable to not be uncomfortable. Like, you don't have to take on the sins of other people. That's not that's not what we're asking. So, um, Christina, who are we talking about today? Uh, So we're going to be talking about the Lafferty brothers. A lot of people know them from under the banner of heaven. Uh, Arvind Shreve, who might be new to some people, to some people, um, might be unfamiliar with him. And then one that a lot that kind of got a lot of news in the last year and people, it got a lot of buzz on Twitter and Facebook. And that is the Knights of the Crystal Blade. And we can already hear like commentary about it. But here we are. There were only two people. They, they had nothing to do with Mormonism. It was blah, blah, blah. Guys, stop, 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 stop doing that. Okay, go on. So let's start with the Lafferty brothers. 
um, because I think they're particularly interesting. One of them is still alive and he's in prison here in Utah. And, uh, his case is super interesting. His, his court case and his, um, trial was super interesting. And it's actually still an ongoing thing of he was going to get the death penalty. He wasn't. It's great. We're going to talk about it. So Ron and Dan Lafferty grew up in Payson, Utah. Uh, and they ha- were a family of eight children. So a lot of kids in this family and their childhood, not super shocked, was rough with a really abusive dad. For example, his dad, there's a story and like, it, there's a lot of trigger warnings in this whole episode. Yeah, lots of trigger warnings. We gave that that on the last episode, but this is dark stuff, you guys. It's dark, heavy stuff. Christina and I make light of it. That's not because we think abuse is funny. Like, you guys should know me by now. It's just because, like, it's so dark. We just... Coping mechanism. It's Yeah, it's a coping mechanism, and, I mean... It's just so dark. It just makes you uncomfortable. It builds this tension. And sometimes you have to let the tension out with a little bit of dark humor. So, yeah. So very similar to the last story we heard, Mormon family, abusive father. There's one story in a recollection where the dad got really angry at the mom and ended up beating the family dog to death with a baseball bat. So it's like that kind of very visible psychological abuse in the family. Super interesting that I think is the Lafferty family had a distrust in medicine and the government, which is something that's not super uncommon in fundamentalism. Again, last time we talked about everything being on a spectrum, this is a Mormon idea. Like anti-government sentiments run really deep in Mormonism, especially if you go down to Southern Utah. And I'm talking like LDS Mormonism. Like we have the Bundys, for example, who believe in the idea of righteous government. Mormons, especially Southern Utah Mormons, who are really connected to the land and this idea of like liberty get really suspicious of government. That's that's just something that that's a vein I would say is not just in fundamentalism. Yeah, absolutely. And also, maybe not a distrust in conventional medicine, but you know, early church leaders didn't like doctors. We've talked about this on this show. And so there there are strains of that in a lot of Mormon communities of kind of wanting more homeopathic options, going to natural paths instead of conventional doctors. So again, not super unique, but still a thing worth noting. And some tendencies towards scrupulosity. So one example in a Deseret News article, it gave a case of a time when one of the sons in the family accidentally shot himself with an arrow in the stomach. I have no idea how he did that. I've sat on that for a while. And the dad said that he would have to su- that his punishment for that was to suffer until the morning because he broke the Sabbath. So that's the kind of family that the Lafferty's are coming out of. But um, do we want to talk about, you know, it was a lot of a lot of boys in the family. They also didn't pay taxes because they believed they were above the law, again, um, which is important. But to point out these guys are not fundamentalists at this point. No, no, they're very no, they're LDS people who did have anti-government leanings and in terms of not paying taxes, it's not the not paying taxes that I find interesting for the story. It's their reasoning was because they felt that they were above the law because God's law mattered more. And so they are coming from a family that while not fundamentalist, they did have they were on this, you know, Mormon spectrum that in different ways can influence fundamentalist ideation. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so Dan began to believe he was a prophet pretty early on, even to the point, very similar to Brian David Mitchell, started growing out his facial hair because he wanted to resemble the prophets of old. And then, so this is bef- before kind of joining a fundamentalist group, which we'll talk about 
1982, uh, Dan was excommunicated from the LDS church because he tried to take his 14-year-old stepdaughter as a second wife. So that's even before his movement into fundamentalism. He's already getting these ideas, um, thinking he's a prophet and receiving revelation. And that happens. And part of that is both of these men separately, but also together, start to believe in polygamy and that it was a true principle. And they start to want to enact polygamy while still being LDFs. Ron's wife was skeptical of this and refused to practice. And she left him. And so this is kind of where things take a turn. Um, and it's still before they're technically formally fundamentalist. But his wife says no to polygamy. And he falls into a rage. Um, both of the men around this time join a fundamentalist group called the School of the Prophet, uh, which was founded by Robert Crossfield, who was called to, quote, take up where my servant Joseph had left off. And that, that uh, he, whole, his story is something we should focus on, too, because then we get tied into the dream mine and we get like all mm-hmm. of these crossovers with schools. Absolutely. Um, And I have a little bit about that. We have done an episode on the Lafferty brothers, really a lot more in depth than we're doing here because we're covering more, but I'll link to that so you can hear more about it. But go ahead. Yeah. So Robert Crossfield, like, you know, everyone else in this episode was excommunicated from the LDS church in 1972. And he uh, started writing a lot and he has his own book of revelations and he makes clear, quote, in terms of the school of the prophets, he says, quote, we are not a church and do not do missionary work to gather members. We believe that the church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints was set up within the present nations for a period of time known as the fullness of the times of the Gentiles and do not discourage anyone from joining or remaining within this organization. Nevertheless, we advise all members to not sustain the present leadership, but to ask for a trial to settle the controversy, the, the controversies over them as explained in DNC. 10781 to 84. So very similar to other fundamentalist groups, Robert Crossfield and the School of the Prophets did not understand themselves as a church. They understood themselves as a priesthood that functioned independent of the church. Um, the LDS church was still the church. So there were members of School of the Prophets who were still LDS, um, but they were also attending School of the Prophets meetings, which is not a unique story. So Dan and Ron join. Like I, do. I wish, you know, like, so in Mormonism, there's this idea, it's kind of this folk idea that like in, during the judgment day, when we die, when we're, we're all done, like we will know all that we did. Right. And, and so we would talk about it growing up as like, in terms of you'd all be sitting in this big, like park in heaven and God would have this big movie screen and we would see everything that we ever did in our lives. Right. And I love this idea and it's still like I still will sort of circulate this in my head sometimes, especially when I get frustrated. I'm like, I want to know the answers to everything or I'll see a stranger walking down the street and I'm like, I wonder if I'm going to show up in their movie, like just walking by and and then I'll be sitting there and I'll be like, hey, that's that, that's me. Look at my ugly outfit that my mom sewed for me when I was eight. Oh, my gosh. But anyway, so I I would love to like have that feature. It makes me sad that I don't really believe in that anymore because I'm like, oh, that would be so great if we could run a film on all the dudes who have done the School of the Prophets in their living room mm-hmm. in Mormonism. It would be insane. Like I've, I have people contact me. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Every couple of months, someone will message me and say, hey, this family member, this friend, this teacher, this leader of mine, 
I think they're starting their own church. <laughs> it's always the same thing. Like, I don't mean mm-hmm. to laugh at it, but it's... No, it's a thing. It's a thing. Okay. It's a thing. And as a plug, if you're interested in where the name School of the Prophets comes from, Signature just released their transcriptions of the Salt Lake School of the Prophets minutes. You can read what the School of the Prophets was, um, at least the Salt Lake iteration. So that is a gr- is the group that Ron and Dan joined. Now, kind of looking back a little bit, I mentioned that Ron's wife was skeptical and refused to practice polygamy, and she left. And Ron went into a rage, and it's well documented that he channeled his rage into three people. Chloe Lowe, who was the Relief Society president of his his ex-wife. Richard Stowe, who was the stake president, who presided over his excommunication. And Brenda Lafferty, who was the wife of his youngest brother. And she, ref- she stopped her husband, Alan, from joining the School of the Prophets. And so... In his mind, she became, you know, the subject of his rage. So in March 1984, Ron received a revelation. And in everywhere that you read about it, what's so interesting is they're really clear to let you know he wrote it on yellow legal paper, a yellow legal pad. Have you read that? Uh, I actually think I have. Yeah, which I think is so, I mean, that's so, I think that's one of those great, that's such a small detail, but to me, that's such this perfect example of the extraordinary and the ordinary that mingle within Mormonism that he wrote his revelations on yellow legal pads. Cause I have those to write my to-do list and it became known as the removal revelation. And it's important to note that when he shared the removal revelation with other members of the school, of the prophets, they were alarmed by it. So in the Lafferty case, I think it's important to comment that, the group that he was part of were not into this, that this was him and his brother um, and that the wider school of the prophets wasn't super into it. I can't say that I blame her. No, I mean, so no. So he, so what happens is he writes down this revelation. I will read it. And then he reads it out of school, of the prophets meeting and the rest of the members are like, no, we do not sustain this. And that's fair. So what it says on yellow legal paper, quote, Thus saith the Lord unto my servant, the prophets, it is my will and commandment that ye remove the following individuals in order that my work might go forward. For they have truly become, become obstacles in my path, and I will not allow my work to be stopped. First, thy brother's wife, Brenda, and her baby. Then Chloe Lowe, then Richard Stowe. And it is my will that they will be removed in rapid succession. It's the worst. It's the worst. And so, again, I want to make it clear. He reads this in a public meeting of their group. And you can only imagine listening to that in a group setting. People are offering revelations. People are offering prayers. And this man stands up and reads that off of a yellow legal pad. What does my face look like? Like, no. It's just... Why, like, I, I, like I mentioned before, I mean, that's this perfect. These, these are dudes that have altars in their living room. How many living room altars are we talking about? Like, yellow legal pad feels more formal than some, some of what. How many laminated temple ceremonies have we seen? I know, I, got, I like, know, but like it's just this stains, perfect like ranch dressing stains. Okay, I know, but like, I don't, I don't know why that's these so strange like, to me. I think it's because like, Mormons are a I use DIY them. people. We just. 
We but like, I don't have like, right? I don't have laminated temple scripts. I do have a yellow legal pad right now. Anyway, so I, I mean, and I can all, like, I can't imagine sitting in that room with all the members and having someone stand up and read that and just what I would be thinking. So everyone says, nope, we're not into it. And that revelation is not canonized, obviously, and it's thrown out. But on the afternoon of July 24, 1984, Ron was 42 and his brother Dan was 36. And they set out to fulfill the revelation on their own. They drove to Brenda's home with a sawed-off shotgun, a 30 by 30 Winchester, and a .270 deer rifle, and a knife. And they murdered her and her child. I don't want to get into the details of it, but it does harken back to 19th century blood atonement. And I think that's something that's particularly interesting. I think what's interesting there is they didn't use all the weapons there. They did it 19th century style. And a lot of people have commented on that. There's been a lot of discussion about how they did it. But I think it's particularly important that it was a very Mormon style murder. I'm trying to remember at one point they were likening themselves to like he was, you know, Dan saw himself as God's arm and and his brother Ron was God, God's brain or something. And John Krakauer talks about this in the book, but it's been a while since I've read it. So we did talk about it on the other episode. Oh, that's right. So Brenda, of course, dies and so does her 15th month old daughter. And both men were obviously taken to court. And they were offered standby counsel, uh, standby counsel. And it was Michael Esplan and Gary Waite who were their counselors for the trial. During this time, Ron attempted suicide and he was put in the Utah State Hospital. And that's an important detail. And that becomes crucial to his whole trial and how complicated his trial got. Dan Lafferty represented himself in trial. And of course, he was found guilty. I don't know what the deal with prophets representing themselves in a court of law is, but they do it. And they always sound like they're preaching revelation. I know. Um, listen. When they're doing that. Listen, let me give you some advice, prophets. I know you're the one mighty and strong, but. Yeah, I, I get it. You talk to God. Seek legal counsel. It's just, I, it, it's just, I think that's an interesting thing that a lot of prophets do this. Like, I mean, why do you need a lawyer when you have the power of God? Here's the other. God here's the red flag, ways. guys. If you're following a, a prophet who says he's gonna break down the walls of the courthouse or the judge or the jail or the prison, mm-hmm. I yeah, give I, it three days. Give it three solid days, and if it doesn't happen, it's not gonna happen. The other thing super strong is, these days. Who are you to think that God didn't put Michael Esplin and Gary Waite there as the v- vessel of His work? We don't know. So, Ron. Attempts suicide. He's in the Utah State Hospital. Dan is given a guilty verdict. So Ron Lafferty is found competent for trial by the doctors, and he was tried and convicted to the death penalty. However, it was later returned, and he was found incompetent. And this is a back and forth that has gone on since then, trying to figure out if he was competent or incompetent to stand trial because of his suicide attempt. A federal court of appeals ordered a new trial in 1996, and he was convicted and sentenced to death again. So Ron Lafferty is still sitting in prison. Most recently, the district court judge D. Benson stated, in talks with Lafferty, stated, Lafferty argues that allowing him to be executed after almost a quarter of a century on death row would constitute cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment. He says that he has spent years, quote, under brutal prison conditions, experiencing daily trauma of facing death. 
and that executing him now would not serve any legitimate purpose and would only add to his psychological pain. So as of last, that was a quote from last year. So Ron Lafferty is still in prison on death row and the decision to give him the death penalty or not is still going back and forth since his initial trial in 1985. This is something interesting back to this God and lawyer thing. Like God doesn't have an eighth amendment. So when these guys are like doing their business, they don't care about cruel or unusual punishment to them. It's just, but the legal Mm -hmm. system apparently um i guess when you're in prison you start you have to start believing in the legal system and i want to throw it out there that ron lafferty has a cellmate the one the only mark hoffman up until recently i heard that mark hoffman was moved what I, i was so excited for my like for people to be like what also it doesn't seem super likely that ron would be with another cellmate but I've heard by many people that he and and Mark shared a cell, at least for a while. Those yeah, conversations. They did, they did. They did share uh, for a while, but um, Lindsay, those Mark cell conversations been moved to the Gunnison prison. Oh, can you imagine those cell conversations though? Like late at night, what you in for? Like, what are they talking about, Lindsay? So Dan Lafferty's in Bluffdale in the Utah State Prison, and Hoffman is now in Gunnison. So those two have been um, separated. Separated. And, yeah, I mean, maybe that's, like, a special kind of hell for both of them. Like, one was trying to bring down Mormonism, the other one was building his own. I don't know. I just can't. I can't. And if they, like, are less letting these guys listen to us in prison, like, you can answer the question. We're asking. So go ahead and, you know, if you want to write a manifesto to, like, the paper, that's one way you could do it. Uh, or you can email us at. <laughs> uh, I would say that, like, if you're, if you're thinking about God's wrath, I'm going to turn that one down. I'm going to say, let's, that's not the proper, that's not the polite way to express uh, an answer. For kind, for kind things, we have an email address, but for more wrathy, we have a P.O. box we're setting up. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, Mormonism. So Lafferty. that's the Lafferty story. A lot of people are familiar with it. For more details, um, Under the Banner of Heaven is also, actually a really great book. Also, this is for our younger audience, and I hope that, that you're out there. If you have a father involved in a school of prophets... Tell a trusted teacher or counselor that you know close to you because it's not good. And in the words of the women of my favorite murder, call your dad. Call your dad. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna call call your dad. All right. Or Can not you your take dad. Out the part of- not your dad if your dad's in the school of <laughs> Okay, so Lafferty's, let's move on from Lafferty's. Arvin. This one so oddly, so Lindsay thinks this is her least favorite of all of them. It's not my least favorite. But this one, for some reason, like, this one is just, it's disturbing and it's horrible. But it's also just weird to me. Did you feel weird? Yeah. Christina, like, you're, like, I'm going to, like, check your barometer because, yeah, the Lafferty totally regular. But this one's a little <laughs> off. I think this one's off because it's, we're going to get into it. You know what? Everyone can make a decision for themselves. So Arvind Shreve was the landscaper who lived in Ogden. Arvind Shreve was LDS, although uh, after establishing a small, tight-knit community, 
and beginning to receive revelations, he was excommunicated by the LDS church. So again, common themes here, receiving revelations and visions, establishing a small community, um, and then being excommunicated. So he lived in Ogden, and all the accounts talk about having like a small, quote, enclave of 10 houses. So I imagine it being kind of like a cul-de-sac. Is that what you're imagining? Yeah, it's more rural in my mind, but yeah. Okay, so I'm, it, it, so it's 10 houses. We know that. And so Sharif began recruiting women and, you know, pretty, he's not recruiting men, but he's recruiting women. And specifically, he was targeting women with emotional problems and women who were in bad marriages. So I will say, um, in, I, okay, so one of the really controversial things that people talk about is ritual abuse, right? Because it's tied to recovered memories and, and, mm-hmm. um, the satanic scare and Mormonism, which, if you want to hear more about that, we've talked about that Mormon expression, which is a different podcast. I do think that Arvin's model does model some of the yes. pathways that, that like ritual abuse survivors will say. They'll say like there was like this, you know, this ring in my, this pedophile ring in my ward or whatever. And and I would call this ritual abuse. Yeah. And, like and full stop. He really kind of used that model. So just for any non-Mormon listener, like in, in what we call the Book of Mormon Belt, which is like. Utah, Southeast Idaho, all the way up to Canada, and then down into the colonies in Mexico, you have these like Mormon enclaves to use to use your word where like you have entire neighborhoods that are predominantly Mormon. And so like it is possible that these guys, someone like Arvin Shreve, can get people in close proximity yeah. and do what he does. Yeah, absolutely. And what you mentioned about ritual abuse is really important because that is exactly what he was cre- he was grooming a situation to create that. So he was recruiting women with emotional problems and bad marriages, and that'll become important later. And so women would go through an orientation where they joined sister councils, which sounds fine, but it wasn't great. And there were like so, 70 women that he ends up recruiting. And sorry, yeah. 70 people. Mm-hmm. And they, the councils were in every aspect of life. So they, even your diet, your finances, um, hygiene, everything. Um, and each council was run by a male leader, what they called an eternal companion, uh, who quote, led a group of women in right to righteousness. So there were these councils of women who were led by a man. Um, but usually there was a particular woman in charge. And, and, and so she- I would say, okay, so we've been talking about these Mormon ideas on the spectrum. This one, I think, is really informed by that idea of the United Order, this uh, Zionist society, you know, uh, communal living, which, you know, plays out in all kinds of funky ways in Mormonism. But in this case, like a lot of these doctrines are rooted in this idea of like communal sharing, communal living, communal practice, uh, yeah, giving your everything, times, talents and whatever to the church. And the communal making of things. And this group particularly produced lingerie. Did you know that? I didn't know that until recently. No, I didn't know that. So they produced lingerie and the brand was called, I can't, you're going to have to take out me laughing. I can't. It's so bad, but like, it's just so absurd. The lingerie brand was called Sweet Things. You know, Mormons, like, let's just, we got to throw, sweet is starting to get tainted, like the word moist. (laughs) We just need to put it away with that. Stop yes. So this group produced lingerie, in, interesting United Order connection, like you mentioned, called Sweet Things. And they 
So they sold their lingerie to sex workers who they would hire to come to the homes to offer sexual instruction. Did you um, know that? I'm just going to keep asking if you knew things because I was really shocked by that. Okay. I have to ask you this because I don't know this because this is the part I didn't hear. Is this similar? You know, there was a there was a trend that started out when I was young and married, and I'm sure that it's happening. It's like a pampered chef party for sex stuff, and you would go to. Pe- no, I'm, I'm not making this up, Christy. You got to stop no, looking this face. I was invited to one in undergrad. You're not lying. So it wasn't Mormon. It wasn't just Mormon too. Because I'm wondering if like this is how they did it. They're like, hey, we're gonna come and like sell all this. No, be- I don't know because they were hiring actual sex workers, not. MLM business people. Wait, so, so they were having, they're instructing the sex workers or they're letting the sex workers instruct them? Letting the sex workers instruct them on sexual practices. So again, oh, interesting. Lot, so this, gr- this group became really known for grooming. Um, and so that was kind of one of the aspects of it. So, and this group became widely known for their sexual practices that were different than the wider community, but also became abusive. Um, so Shreve commanded one of the councils, like I mentioned, um, and had spiritual and sexual relations with 28 women over uh, that were under his jurisdiction. Unfortunately, uh, the youngest was 14 years old. So this is kind of where it goes south for Urban Shreve. Urban Shreve. So uh, there was a lot of reports of abuse, um, pretty you know, throughout this whole time, people would, go, there was, there's videos, you can watch videos of cameramen going to the Sharif homes and Arvind Sharif yelling at them and wives just turning away and walking inside. And so police finally decided to act after gathering evidence from a number of people connected with the group. One of them was named Ron Van Drimmelen, and he claimed that Sharif sexually abused his seven-year-old son. And so that was when police finally decided to get involved. And that, so on, and when you look at the allegations from former members, some of them are really atrocious. So I don't even want to like say them. Yeah, I wouldn't. They're, they're very atrocious. So a lot of them are really atrocious. Um, and just just tell us they're if gr- any or like if the rituals are important or no. So they're not necess- they're not necessarily important, but I, kind of the overarching theme of them are their acts of abuse that other women are forced to watch and participate in. And it is it, the overall issue is that it's grooming young women to perpetuate this cycle and to okay. be part of it. Yeah. And so I want to, I want to put this out. So um, in Joseph Smith's time, he was using a term for older women called mothers in Zion. So some of his older wives were considered mothers in Zion who, whose jobs were to prepare the younger wives. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, this is an idea that shows up when, when last episode we were talking about Brian David Mitchell. He gives uh, Wanda Barzi, his wife at the time, this term. She gets to, that's like one of her positions. And so in polygamy, sometimes in some of these groups, not in all, but in some older women are seen as a mother in Zion as like this holy calling. And it's a way to sort of give a project to older women um, to bring younger women into this order. Now, from a religious standpoint, it's so anyone hearing that might be like, that's grooming, that's terrible. And of course it is. But from a religious standpoint, like from the perspective of the faithful, it's like this beautiful moment where 
women get to help other women with this coming of age and whatever, but really they're grooming them into sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And in these cases, it was unquestionable, unquestionably um, grooming for sexual abuse. And so without talking about the specifics of the crimes, that's the big takeaway is that each account was grooming behavior. So November, 1991, uh, Shreve pleaded guilty to two counts of sodomy of a child and two counts of sexual abuse to the child. And he ends up going to prison. In addition to that, three women, Sharon Cap, 36, Jennifer Shreve, 25, and Amy Partridge, 27, were all charged with two second degree felony counts of sexual abuse of a child and sexual exploitation. So Arvind Shreve goes to prison. He dies in prison. He actually died pretty recently um, in 2009. Um, he was actually set for parole in 2012, which I didn't know that. And that was shocking to me that he was up for parole in 2012. He still has followers and people are sympathetic to his belief system. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, that's all I want to say about that. Uh, so the three women who were um, convicted, they entered non-guilty pleas. Um, the reason why I initially found out about Arvind Shreve, and, you know, I, I am in no way a scholar of Society of Zion or the Zion Society. Um, I became interested in Arvind Shreve because after he went to prison, several of his female members went down and joined the TLC in Manti. And so that's how I first became acquainted with Arvin Shreve. And there, there were later claims, um, really public claims. There was a book written about a young woman in the TLC written by her and her attorney. And she claims to have been groomed by former members of Zion Society. So she's, she claimed that after these women left Zion Society, they joined the TLC and enacted similar grooming practices down there. So that's how I first became interested in them. And I found that to be a strange connection. And actually, when we've talked about the TLC, we've talked about sort of these group rituals and, and some ex-Harmston followers claim that he did very similar things. Like the doctrines, like you said, are very similar with the wives and these councils. And it's still quite secretive what uh, the TLC, how these councils practice things. But I think you're right. I think that the two were very closely linked. And that's why I think that the two found ex-followers of his found uh, the TLC's doctrine very compatible. So that's Arvind Shreve and the Zion Society. And what I think is particularly interesting about them, they're not super well known, but what makes them so unique was an institutionalized grooming. What was unique is that they had an institutionalized grooming? That it, it wasn't, you know, we talk about religions that have institutionalized grooming, but they were so upfront about it. Like this was part of the religion. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily that unique. And I, Oh, one of the things that people point out about them is that they um, were very, their sexual practices had a heavy focus on lesbian relationships, which is not necessarily unique to fundamentalism, but they had a very upfront um, practice of that, uh, which I was just talking to Christopher Blythe about this, about Arvind Shreve when I was working on the TLC stuff. Um, and he reminded me that John Bryant did similar things. That's interesting. Yeah, that's right. Which I totally forgot that John Bryant um, had homosexual practices institutionalized as part of his um, group. Well, and so did, you know, Warren Jeffs. Yes. So, uh, well, and there, I, I'm, I'm not going to say more than this. There are rumors that other groups in the highest orders have mm -hmm. similar 
ordinances. So, okay. So, uh, anything else we want to say about him? No. So now we're going to the rough one. Okay. Uh, this is spoilers. So Lindsay, when I, I asked her before we started, I was like, which one's your least favorite? And she said, Arvin Shreve. This one's mine. Just full stop. This one's mine. Yeah. I mean, you're right. This one's, this one isn't great. I mean, this is a and I, it's not, not just I, the crimes. I don't really want to do because it's so gross. It's not just the crimes for me either. It's the historical distance that there isn't any. You know, I, I make the joke a lot that I became Catholic because historical distance matters to me <laughs> a lot. Um, this one gave me none. This happened last year. Around this time. Yeah, let's just let's get it out. Uh, unfortunately, we know people tied to this. We don't mean any disrespect. Uh, I know it's a very painful thing to people that mm-hmm. saw this up close. Um, so, but and get it, get through it. And I, I think, I think it matters because, like you said, it is two people, but so are a lot of things. The other one is it's not a secret that I am not in any way anti polygamy. In fact, I'm very pro the decriminalization hold on, hold on. of polygamy. I just something cursed me. Like when when we talk about Brian David Mitchell, no one's like, oh, there was only three people involved with that. Like that's not how this works. I know, I know. Um, but I just want to, as like a, because like you mentioned, like. Yeah, we we knew people that were close to this. Um, I'm in no way anti-polygamy, very pro the decriminalization of polygamy. I know a lot of people practicing the principle that have very, that are great. Um, But I do think it's important to talk about when it doesn't work and when it is harmful because both are valid perspectives that matter and need to be talked about. So the Knights of the Crystal Blade were two men, Samuel Schaefer and John Coltharp. So... The two, the group first came into national attention when Kolthrop was arrested for keeping his uh, two do- two daughters and sons, despite a court order from his ex-wife, to not. And on December 4th, 2017, so a week ago, a year ago yesterday, um, the two children weren't turned over and his home was raided. Uh, where he and Schaefer lived. And they had, tr- they had kind of created a compound like setting with shipping crates um and they found Coltharp's sons but they couldn't find his daughters and so they set out an amber alert an amber alert was issued Schaefer's daughters were found in a single wide uh trailer and Coltharp's two daughters were later found in an empty 50 gallon water drum and it was freezing and so that's kind of how this came to national attention people yeah, this was in headlines so dark and horrific it's I know um, again, not going to get into the details of the abuse, but, um, that was something that came into national attention. People were watching on the news because it was an Amber alert. Like this was something people were watching, especially in Iron County, Utah. Um, people knew this was happening. So the sheriff's detective, um, said that Schaefer had told police that he had married Coltharp's eight-year-old daughter and that Coltharp had married Schaefer's seven-year-old daughter. And of course we know that abuse would have come with that. So I'm going to leave that there. Can in January. The doctor behind that though, because again, we... In last episode, we talk about the series that the Utah Bee is doing on underage marriage and Connell O'Donovan's work on pedagogy, which is this mm-hmm. idea of old men marrying young children. And mm-hmm. we see, like, what's the doctrinal justification for this? Um, so I don't have the sources for it. Uh, but um, so one of the things that 
Connell talks about is that this started in Nauvoo. Um, a lot of people are familiar with the lives of Joseph Smith. A few of them were very young. Um, not this extent of an age gap, but that the wives were very young. Um, most notably, we remember Helen R. Kimball, Fanny Alger, and those women. Um, and then even in the FLDS with Warren, um, a lot of people have very publicly heard stories of what he called the Helen Marr doctrine of marrying very young girls um, coming out of DNC 132. And at the end of 132, Joseph says that there will be more revealed later. And so my understanding is that Warren interpreted that to mean young women. Yeah, this idea that, you know, God is revealed or, uh, you know, some of Warren's family members will talk about that Warren used to say, you know, when God talks about, or when Joseph Smith talks about, there are things that can be revealed that God has revealed that if you knew about it, you wouldn't believe. It's it's those loopholes, those sort of, and some of it is rooted in things that Joseph Smith actually said, or Brigham Young, or other prophets, but some of it is this, like, sort of folklore that has become, right. um, but it's this idea that, like, there is something so wild, so crazy, so hard to live. And really, again, so the doctrinal principle on the on the spectrum here is this idea of sacrifice and hardship. It's very, very Mormon um, in this works doctrine that you can earn your salvation if you do. Sometimes the harder the thing that you do, the yeah. more, the greater the reward. And also very rooted in 132. The doctrine that justified all the underage marriages. In Mormon history. I mean, them them are fighting words for Mormon historians, right? Like, they don't want to acknowledge that. They want to acknowledge only an interpretation that, that validates this idea that, no, 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 it's like celestial marriage. Yeah. It's, it's fine. But really, I mean, you could also interpret those scriptures to this end. And again, when you have a Book of Mormon scripture where there's this idea of you cutting off a man's head, so in the story, in the Book of Mormon story, the righteous sons of Lehi go and cut off this dirty politician's head, Laban, because he had a record of the people and he wasn't a good steward of it. So they could go cut off his head to steal these these records. It really is this idea that's sort of baked into all Mormon thinking. And it shows up for me even yeah. still, which is like sometimes like you have to do the hard thing at, the, you know, the sacrifice for the good of the, the, the greater good. And that scripture has been used to justify a lot of violence. I mean, we it was specifically referenced in the Lafferty story. I mean, they talk about that. So, uh, yeah, I just think that when you have ideas like that, when you don't have God outright condemning things, when, when marriages, when marriage systems allow you to marry so many women as a key to heaven, you right there, you, you've incentivized the majority of Mormon men to collect as many women as they can. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention is that Connell talks a little bit about accounts of young girls being taught that the the larger gap in their marriage, the more righteous or the, the greater their eternal reward, something along those lines. And all that is to say is that that's not something specifically taught in 132, but religious innovation happens and adding to doctrine happens. And so things can be created. And Mormonism is a religion that has an open canon and it allows for divine revelation. So these things happen. So on January, in January 2018, these men became the first to be charged under the child bigamy statute in Utah. Um, which I thought was interesting that they were the first to have that charge. Coltharp was charged in San Pete County for Coltharp, um, in San Pete County for various kinds of abuse, 
and Schaefer was charged in Iron County also for abuse. Coltharp initially rejected his plea deal. Then eventually, like I, I, you know, there's a lot of like legal ins and outs, but the plea deals broke down because Coltharp said that his actions were quote sanctioned by God, and so he does invoke God during the trial. Both in the police documents, both men talk about how they were preparing for quote a Muslim invasion of the United States, which would usher in the end times and the end of the world, and so that's what they were largely concerned about. They both, Schaefer initially pleaded guilty. He claimed he was not in his right mind when he entered into his guilty plea, but he may, and he maintained that he was innocent of all the crimes. It's just rough. The county court, so in light of the claims that these were all sanctioned by God, um, the county court told various journalists that, quote, these two guys at their core, at their core are pedophiles. No one, of course, was willing to believe that they were sanctioned by God. No one was willing to believe they were prophets, but that they were just bad people. <laughs> Yeah, again, I mean, this is this is a age old struggle in Utah, right? In modern Utah, which is this idea of like they we just don't know what to do with guys like this, right? Because it triggers the shame, this like Mormon shame that a lot of the lawmakers and judges and attorneys, even those who maybe not be might not be Mormon but grew up in it, like they people are really hesitant to Mm-hmm. throw the book at these guys because it might hold up a mirror you know it's too close mm-hmm. to what they think or i think a lot of them in their psyche somewhere in mormon men's psyche a lot of this logic makes sense and that doesn't mean to, to say that like you know the judges and attorneys are like criminals or you know sympathize with like child abuse but i think the, these ideas and the ways that these things operate and the mechanisms that are used are not so foreign that they don't seem that outrageous, right? They just seem like, oh, this is how this guy got to this logical conclusion, which which is how, you know, I've interpreted a lot of this. Like, it makes sense why a lot of these guys act out these compulsions, these crimes, these illnesses in a Mormon way because Mormonism really opens up that thinking. Yeah. And I one of, one of the reasons I think the Knights of the Crystal Blade case is so important, as much as it's hard, is just to talk about the this is still happening. You know, so many people... Oh, and it's going to keep happening. No. Oh, yeah. But so many people think that, you know, crimes and fundamentalism ended when Warren went to prison. Nope. Yeah, Warren's been sort of thrown under the bus and everyone wants to make it tidy and, you know, clean it up. And in fact, I've talked to a lot of fundamentalists who have who are not part of the FLDS that wanted to help clean up that, that community because they're just a black eye on mm-hmm. Mormonism and Mormon fundamentalism. You know, and some, you know, there are also a lot of good intentions that just feel like mm-hmm. they, you know, weaponized a, a dangerous gospel or something that, but I also think that, yeah, it's going to keep happening. It's going to keep, it's happening every single day. Just last week, I talked to a family. I had a conversation with an entire family whose son is starting his own group and they're worried about their children and, and it's surprising. What's it called? He doesn't have it. He just, it, he just has a creed. He just has this belief that somehow okay. God is speaking to him. And, you know, before that, other people have talked to me. This is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. And I think, wow, like, they're, you know, they come to me for help. And the resources are pretty sparse. Like, we're getting better in these communities of, like, helping people who leave these communities get resources. I mean, even that is really difficult. A lot of therapists aren't trained for this kind of, like, no. religiosity and this indoctrination and abuse. What do we do with the guys that are, like, gearing up for this? And I say guys because we don't see, I mean, every once in a while you've got, like, a Julie Rowe or whatever who... But her power is still soft and limited in her role. And, there, and 
because women don't have the priesthood. Yeah, and you don't, I mean, there's just like, there are ways that this will play out in abuse systems, like with authority and stuff. But there are also very specific ways which we will no. never see them played out. And this is one of them. Right. Like, And we have seen women complicit, you know, in Arvind Shree's case, women were heavily involved in grooming young girls for this. But this is something unique to priesthood holders uh, well, in Mormonism. And I would say the women who are also abusers, and there are plenty of women abusers in Mormonism, they are also acting out their role as abusers in a very Mormon way. So it's like as a wife or a help me to the prophet or whatever. So mm -hmm. it's, again, this is, we're not saying like abuse is caused by Mormonism or is unique to Mormonism. It's certainly not. But in these communities, they play out in a Mormon way and Mormonism yeah. facilitates this. And, and that's proof right there. The fact that it's so gendered how these mm -hmm. roles play out. That not is not necessarily gendered in other societies. Yeah. You don't, I mean, there's something about Mormon abusers where they're often empowered to believe that God is telling them to do it. And that's, that, that's dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And it's I think, all dangerous, but this is a special kind. Yeah. And even, you know, Catholicism is not free from abuse, as everyone knows. You kind of have a problem. But Catholic abuse is very different. It's institutional and systemic, but it's different in that Mormon abuse is so unique in terms of spiritual abuse because any man can do it with authority. And that's something that is very unique to Mormonism. And not a lot of religions offer every man the same power that the leader has. And, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add another layer in Mormonism. Mormon doctrine allows for not only communal living and this idea of consecrating everything to the church and giving all of your power to your leadership, but it also allows for women to be your key to heaven. And like I said, that's an, that's what Mormonism has done with the, these doctrines of heaven have incentivized, you know, people to bring on as many women and children and girls that they can. And this idea of the more children you have, like these are yes. incentives that are specific to Mormon doctrine that allow for abuse to play out in the way that it does. So I think that mm -hmm. that's interesting. And Mormon heaven is so baked in because it's part of this larger American prosperity doctrine of like going to heaven. Like no one ever goes like, why, why heaven? Like, why would we want to go to heaven? Why did, that doesn't make sense? Like, why, why is yeah. that the next thing? We, that's just like the unquestionable American truth. And then layered onto that is this Mormon idea of, oh, and to get there, you need a lot of ladies. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is scary, unique to Mormonism. Or at least in, in when Mormonism started, it wasn't necessarily unique to Mormonism, but now it is. Yeah, uh, not our greatest legacy, but a long one. And like, you know, we'll link to Connell O'Donovan's research, which is very heavy and dark stuff. Like, this has been this is not new, and it's been going on, mm -hmm. and it will continue to go on. And it and I think it will play out in these very predictable ways. Uh, school of prophets. I mean, we've kind of made light of it tonight, but like it really is. It, you can tell the warning signs from these guys that are going off the deep end. You know, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I just, you and know, I, I feel the need to say, like, culture incentivizes that too. Like, the closer, the more righteous, the more dedicated you are to your spiritual practice in mm -hmm. our communities, it's rewarded. And so, religiosity is actually, in a lot of cases, rewarded. Absolutely. Well, you have like you have those guys, everyone has them in their ward that goes off the deep end, right? They get up and they talk about some dream or revelation and everyone kind of squirms in their chair. But it's not out of line. It's not out of line with, with Mormon theology or doctrine. I mean, sometimes it is. 
But like their what I what I mean is their ability to express it is not necessarily out of line. No, I I my most vivid fasted testimony experience was a man in a bolo tie standing up in front of everyone to testify that he knew through revelation that there are demons in our minds that we must exercise. Everyone was painfully uncomfortable. No one stopped it. Yeah. And you have, you know, you have kids like me who are sitting in that congregation and you don't have a conversation after that's like, you know what that guy said? Like that you just heard? That's not real. You have like, no one does that because it's so uncomfortable and we don't know what to do with it. And so we're sort of silent. And this is why these systems of abuse exist and, and why we talk about abuse in systems because people are complicit in their silence because we don't know what to do and we're uncomfortable. I, you know, I spoke to a person the other day who was in a ward with a man who got up and spoke in tongues and he, after he did it in Sunday school, he claimed it was Nephite and he translated it and everyone was kind of like, that's weird. They didn't say anything. They went on their way. Like, but when you think about it, like the gift of tongues is a spiritual gift mentioned in our scripture. He's not out of line. Like it's weird. It's strange. Most people don't do it. But because of those loopholes, and I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not arguing that Mormons like tighten up their theology or their canon. Uh, like Mormon canon's already a mess. Like nobody knows what's what, right? But because we have this idea that whatever a prophet says is directly from God, that right there opens us up for a lot of trouble because we've had a lot of yeah. prophets and they've said a lot of stuff. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I feel the need to say that this isn't an indictment on fundamentalism broadly, but in all traditions, all, all traditions of any kind can create systems of abuse. And it's thing. I, important I to talk about. This whole, this entire podcast has tried to break down all of those stereotypes. So like, I don't even think we have to pander to that. If people are still worried. I just am waiting for some I know, but thing. Christina, I'm telling you, that's more about them and their need to protect an identity than it is about what's actually happening. And and I, you know, this is a, this is a simple. Oh, no, I'm more waiting for anti-polygamy activists to be like, see, we were right. I get, I get accused of being too hard on polygamy and then too soft on polygamy. And I'm just like, guys, polygamy is an aspect of what we're talking about here in the system. Polygamy is a system that's rooted in a patriarchal system in the church. And it's, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to dumb it down and talk about it in a, in a black and white mm-hmm. way, because that's what Mormonism wants us to do. Yeah. And I think that that's dangerous. So if you are feeling defensive or uncomfortable, like don't project it onto us, you know. Also, uh, you have a right to your own opinion. If you think School of the Prophets is the one true order, do your thing. Just don't don't break the law, maybe. like Laws are there to protect you. Laws of the land. There's also loopholes in Mormon doctrine that allow for you to follow those, too. We haven't been good at that traditionally. <laughs> And there's loopholes for monogamy. That's not true. I get to be a ministering angel forever. It's going to be fun. Yeah. uh, I would just say, like, if your doctrine or theology is asking you to um, convince somebody of something um, that involves their bodily autonomy, it involves coercion or grooming or um, recruiting... (gasps) Think twice about that, and that include. I would include missionary work in that. Sometimes we think that we have the answers, and that ends up going really badly really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, uh, enough opining from me. Thank you, Christina. Do you have anything else you want to say on this happy topic? Just be good to people. Yeah, like, 
I mean, even that, like, they're like, well, we are. We're like giving them salvation. Like, how about we just, how about we don't? How about we ask questions of like, why heaven? Why why do I need to be in heaven? What's that about? And I mean, I would welcome you to mass weekly. <laughs> I, would, I would encourage everyone, not just potential prophets, but everyone to get some therapy. Therapy's amazing. I love therapy. I'm in therapy all the time. Uh, so... Yeah, just just do your own work, you know. Stop starting churches. We have so, we have a lot of those. Just do your own work. Hundred percent. In the name of cheese and rice, look, two testaments. Amen. <laughs> okay, well, everyone, thanks for listening. Sorry for the dark episode, and we'll get back to you know uplifting and positive things like Mormon polygamy and fundamentalism. Bye. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.